0: Father, Lord, we just praise you and thank you. Thank you for um, the way you work among your people throughout history. Thank you for your truth that we can go to and learn from. Lord, I just pray for our brothers and sisters now that um, are in crisis, that they would be able to be a witness where you place them. Put it on our hearts, Father, to pray for those that are daring to go and preach your word to um, a people that doesn't want to live. Father, I pray that we, too, would be um, moved to, to share your word, Lord, and your truth with those who do not love you or do not know you. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. It has been pointed out that the focus of the book of Jonah is not a great fish. It's not Nineveh or even Jonah himself, but that these are background elements where in an account where merciful and just God is sovereign over creation and the nations. So sometimes we focus on these elements, but it's really about God. Jonah is a book in which God's call for all men to repent is clear, and his mercy and grace shine through each part of the text. Jonah is a literal book, and it is meant to be read literally. Firstly, the book of Jonah presents itself as actual history. And the book of 2 Kings 14 refers to Jonah as an historical person. Secondly, Jesus himself testifies to the literal account in Jonah in Matthew 12 and in Luke 11. The early church and the Jews of his time also took this book as a literal book, so we also do that. Although the events from Jonah may seem like the stuff that makes for ta- tall tales, we can trust God's word and we can also trust his character. God is not a liar. God repeatedly uses both supernatural and natural events in events in the book of Jonah as well as throughout scripture. He is a creator, and he can do anything he wants in any way he wants, and so we take the book of Jonah literally. Um, We must be careful as students of the Word not to add anything to Scripture and not to take anything away. So as I was doing my research, we had a lot of hypotheses on this and that. and They were all very interesting, but I think we'll just stick with the story, knowing what is written actually happened, and take it as truth. Um, When we don't add anything, we don't take anything away, Sometimes things are confusing. We may not find the answer right away to every question that we have, but we will be taking God at his word and we'll be trusting his character and he always, always honors that when you do that. Um, We see that um, he honors this in scripture time and time again with people who trust his word and trust his character. You may have heard the phrase, dare to be a Daniel, growing up in Sunday school, and um, it's tempting to say, just don't be a Jonah, but um, I was like, hey, that's really funny, I'll say that, but I'm like, wait, that's kind of convicting, because I'm like Jonah, so I thought, this guy gets his story written down, it's an account that God had, so it's really convicting, it's written down for me to learn from, so just don't be a Jonah um, also can apply to me as well. Jonah was the man whose story was divinely recorded for people to read and to learn from. So you had this in your homework in a chart. Um, Some of these will be the same and some of these will be different, but I just thought they were very good. So I wanted to spend part of our time focusing on Jonah and the prophet greater than Jonah in that comparison and that contrast. Um, I won't take the time to identify each personal application as we go through these, but I strongly encourage you to reflect on these as we compare, um, just for your own application, for your own personal life. Um, I'll be reading some verses that are not in your notes. If you want to add that, you can. Um, It's easy to pick on Jonah since his story was the one written down for everyone to read, but since all scripture is breathed by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, and for correction and training in righteousness, we can prayerfully read through Jonah's struggle as well as Christ's example in these. So firstly, Jonah was appointed and sent by God to a wicked nation. First Jonah, we see now the the Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Christ was also prepared, appointed, and sent by God to a wicked world. Isaiah 45. Christ or God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And we see this later in Jonah's prayer when he says salvation is from the Lord. Isaiah forty nine six, speaking of Christ, God says through Isaiah the prophet, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a life for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So we see that prophecy, that Christ is not just going into Israel, but he's also going to the nations. And we can see this in the book of Jonah. Um, Jonah ran from God's presence. First chapter, verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. Why did he flee? Um, Nineveh was referred to to by the prophet Nahum as a city of blood many years later. Their actions were cruel beyond description. I'm not going to mention them because it was like a horror movie when I was reading some of the descriptions and I don't really want to repeat those. But as one commentator said, the cruelty of the Assyrian armies was unparalleled in ancient history. Nineveh was Israel's enemy and we can understand Jonah's abhorrence to his commission from the Lord to preach a message of repentance to such a wicked people. Interestingly, as I did my research, Jonah is from the town of Gath-hepher. This city is only three miles north of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Um, ironically, also, Jonah heads to the port of Joppa to run from the Lord. 800 years later, this is the same port that Paul, the apostle, went to go preach the word of God. The gentles. So I just found that very interesting, the irony of those two. Jonah actually literally headed in the opposite direction of Nineveh to flee from the presence of the Lord. So he put a lot of effort in fleeing from God's presence. Christ, however, sought out the Father's presence. And I found this a beautiful contrast. We see this so many times as Jesus set aside time and priority to spend time in prayer with the Father. Anticipating the separation from the Father on the cross was agony to him. As born-again children, we must also abide with him, follow him, and desire his presence, or we will never know the joy and the peace that comes with that surrender. Jonah turned from God's command and God's will. So his disgust for a people group um, overruled God's command and declared his word to his people. Although the world might say Jonah was justified in standing up for what seemed fair from a human perspective, God called it rebellion. Jonah had put himself on the throne of his own life rather than the Lord, and he had no grace or compassion on those he considered his enemies. Christ, in contrast, was obedient to the Father's will unto death. Philippians 2:5 through 8. Have this mind you among yourselves, which is also Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What a beautiful testimony of Christ's obedience. This was in your homework, but Jonah was powerless over his own life. As a sinner, he was unable to save himself or others. Prophetically and humbly, Jonah declares from the belly of the great fish, Yeshua Yehovah, which means uh, salvation is from the Lord. Jesus not only holds all power and authority over creation and spiritual realms, but also over his own life. In John 10, 17, uh, we see, he says, for this, this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jonah proclaimed his message to the Ninevites without compassion or mercy. So even though he went and he finally obeyed, he was not doing this from a heart of compassion or mercy. Um, he preached his message from duty. He did not have a desire to invest time or mental energy with the people. I found it very interesting that God asked Jonah. He did not tell him to go straight to the king, tell the king, to tell the people. He told him to go around the city, and in doing so, the prophet would have had to see face to face the families, the children. The wickedness as well as the need for mercy. Jonah's desire was to dismiss the entire nation, but God made sure Jonah had the opportunity to see, observe, and encounter these individuals who, as Creator, God knew by name. Jesus, in contrast, the Savior, is fully invested in people and he has compassion on them. Jesus proclaims in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I I just love the way that mirrors Christ's heart and God's heart. God desires to be known. He desires to teach us, nurture, and give eternal spiritual rest to a perishing mankind. Jonah was angry and sulky when he looked over a city full of people who repented and were saved for destruction. He was, however, exceedingly glad when the plant grew up where he was. And it says that he was exceedingly glad of the plant, so he had a fondness for the plant, even. God caused the plant to grow that became an object of Jonah's affection, contributing to his, his personal comfort and enjoyment. This contrasted with the object of God's affection, which were the souls and lives of many thousands of men, women, and children, created in his image, living in Nineveh. And this was on the chart that you did, but Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. So we have Jonah sitting, being sulky and angry, and Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem because of their unrepentant hearts. Um, uh, Pastor Jeff read this, Few weeks ago, but Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven: As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For while will you die, O house of Israel? And then in First Timothy two, three through five, God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. <coughs> Jonah also wanted to die rather than see people he despised experience God's mercy. Jonah was a recipient of this amazing grace, mercy, and patience, yet he refused to offer that to others. He had more concern over his own personal comfort and sense of justice than he did for the spiritual and physical destiny of many thousands of people. Even the Gentile sailors on the storm-tossed ship had more compassion than Jonah for the repentant people of Nineveh. You may have, someone may have brought this out in your group discussion as well. Not only is this a picture to Israel in Jonah's day of their own national self-interest and unrepentant heart, but it also remains a picture today for us as God's people. How are you and I representing God before the nations, before our family, and before our neighbors? In contrast, we read in Ephesians 2, 1-8, that even though we ourselves were once following the same course of this world and considered rebellious towards God in his way, that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We have been saved by grace, through faith, a gift from God, and not based on our own righteousness or works. I've used this illustration before in the fall but it would be like standing in front of a huge pile of presents that god has given us we didn't deserve it god just filled the whole back of this stage with presents and then i'm demanding from the person in front of me one present in our minds it seems like that's ridiculous but we do that we every single one of us does that so that was very convicting for me as i read through jonah also, the contrast between Jonah's self centered prayer to die because he was angry at God's plan for redemption and Jesus' sacrificial and gracious prayer in the garden before his crucifixion is startling to me. It is also convicting as I examine my own heart and my own prayer life. Um, next thing I'd like to talk about is repentance. There's uh, We have God's mercy, but we also have this theme of repentance that goes through Jonah. Um, God commanded Jonah in verse 2 Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evils come up before me. And Jonah went into the city, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The theme of judgment in Jonah appears to focus primarily on two issues born out of self centeredness one is no regard for others, and the other one is no regard for the Lord. We have a gracious God who perceives judgment with warning and opportunity for repentance. It is possible that God prepared the hearts of the men and women of Nineveh through several natural events recorded as occurring before Jonah's mission to the city. A great plague was documented to occur in 765 B.C. A total eclipse of the sun occurred two years later, and then another plague hit the city, killing many four years later. We do not know how these historical events that are recorded played into Nineveh's sudden repentance because they are not mentioned in the Bible. But whether they did or not, we know from scripture that the city repented in earnest and they believed God's message to be true. Uh, verse five of chapter three says, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word for believed in this passage is the exact same word that is used in Genesis 15-6 regarding Abraham when he believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Christ refers to Nineveh's repentance when rebuking the leaders of Israel for their hardened hearts and their unbelief. And he does this in Matthew 12-13, he answered them and said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Um, According to a Greek text commentary that I looked up, uh, repentance involves a turning with contrition from sin to God. The repentant sinner is in the proper condition to accept the divine forgiveness. I thought that was a really good definition. Um, God speaks to us regarding the nature of repentance through Isaiah uh, 1, verses 18. Uh, if you haven't read this verse, this is a really uh, good one. It just uh, It's very conversational, but God is speaking to the people, and he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow they are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And I think this is such a a contrast between obedience and um, rebellion. It's willing and obedient, refuse and rebel. And right there, you have that that the nature of repentance. Sin has almost become a playful word in American culture, but sin is a very serious matter. It is rebellion against God, it is self-worship, and without the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we would remain in our sinful and desperate state. A truly repentant heart echoes the words of the King of Nineveh when he proclaims, call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In chapter four, verse 10 of Jonah, we read that they had turned from their wicked way and they were spared. They believed God's word. Their heart heart repentance led to repentant action. So we see a repentant heart leads to repentant action. As seen repeatedly in Israel's history, Nineveh's history, and also in America's history, man's lack of faithfulness does not negate God's mercy or his sovereign will in the midst of nations, and the people living in them. He chooses time and place, and he's still working in these nations. His purposes are manifested in Christ Jesus, as Scripture declares salvation is from the Lord. Paul expressed this truth so clearly as he spoke to a group of Gentile unbelievers in one of my favorite passages. And if you ever... Have an opportunity to share with someone who just doesn't know, know scripture this is a great passage to go to because god is dressed. i mean paul is addressing a group of gentile unbelievers that don't have a jewish background but he's speaking to them and he says in Acts 17 24-31 the god who made the world and everything in it being lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands As though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he is fixed today, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. A careless, inaccurate view of God's mercy towards us as sinners can lead to a careless, inaccurate view of God's mercy towards other people. So another theme I wanna talk about is mercy. And so we need to understand what mercy is. There are several definitions of mercy in the Hebrew and the Greek, all portray the character of God. They are translated something sometimes to be gracious towards, have compassion on, have pity on. Mercy has also been defined by some as undeserved grace. You've probably heard that. The definition definition we are most familiar with in Scripture, perhaps, is the word "hesed," which refers to his loving kindness, a definition that goes beyond our human ability for mercy and is seen in the person and character of Jesus Christ only. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia elaborates on this elaborate on this definition of mercy, and I found it very helpful. So that is that's what I have in your notes. Um, I didn't fill it in, but if you want to, you can. I thought this was very these were very good definitions of mercy in light of who God is. Mercy is an essential quality of God and how God describes Himself. Um, Exodus 34 is a scripture reference for that. He's, he comes to Moses and he says, the Lord is God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will know it means clear the guilty. So he is merciful, but there is also sin that needs to be atoned for. It's also God's mercy is associated with forgiveness. In Joel chapter 2 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, fasting, weeping, and mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. His patient forbearance towards mankind, that's another definition of God's mercy. Mercy is his patient forbearance towards mankind. Um, the Lord is gracious, Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So he is gracious and he's merciful towards all that he approved, all mankind that he has created. But he is also, uh, it's also, mercy is also inherent within his covenants towards his people, his justice, his truth, and his faithfulness to his people. Uh, We see that in 1 Kings 8.23. He says, There is no God like you, showing steadfast love to your servants, who walk before you with all their heart. And then in Psalm 103, I'll just summarize. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He does not deal with us according to our sins. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So that's a beautiful promise. Mercy is also abundant and everlasting when it comes to the Lord. Um, Psalm 103, give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then finally, mercy is supremely in Christ and his salvation. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Um, another, so we talked about the con- comparison, contrast. We talked about repentance, talked about mercy. Um, how did these how does this fit in together? Um, God is sovereignly merciful, but He's also sovereignly holy at the same time. And we're going to see that those, those can only exist in Christ. You can only be holy and merciful fully um, through the person of Christ. Uh, your homework had uh, the verse reference, I don't know if you read it or not, in Jeremiah 18.7, where he's talking about a nation. And he says, if At any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up, break it down, and destroy it. And if that nation concerning that which I have spoken turns from its evil then I will relent of the disaster that I intend to do to it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good I had intended to do to it. So this is still within his sovereign will, and yet we see his sovereign mercy. So God changing his course of action towards the judgment of a nation are pictures of his grace, completely within the context of his absolute sovereignty. Because he is holy and just, he will not leave the guilty and punished. We read that in Exodus 34. But he is also long-suffering and slow to anger, not because he is weak or indifferent to sin, but because his desire is that people repent of their sin and turn to him as Lord and Savior. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We see that in the book of Jonah as he's going to Nineveh. We see this mind of the Lord. Throughout scripture, these examples are always pointing to the person of Christ and the character of our Father God. Because God is both holy and merciful, both truth and grace, perfectly, salvation can only come through him. Um, How this plays out is a mystery. But we can completely trust and rejoice in his character. And John 1, 17, this is a hint of this. It says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, praise God, the two are only able to come together and are manifested, displayed perfectly in him. Let's look at a biblical account of a city that had a similar story to Nineveh, but with a very different outcome. You will all be very familiar with this. Um, It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it actually says in Genesis 18 that the outcry against them was great, and that their sin was exceedingly great. So this is very similar wording that we see in the book of Jonah towards Nineveh. The scriptures tell us that Abraham stood before the Lord, and unlike Jonah, Abraham was very concerned for the people that were living in um, these cities, and that they might perish in the path of God's destruction if they were righteous. Abraham begins to respectfully ask the Lord, suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you do such a thing will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you, this is Abraham to the Lord, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the, r- the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Those who are familiar with this passage know that Abraham goes on to ask more. He proceeds to say, what if there are 45 righteous in the city? Will you still destroy it? Then the Lord says, no, I will not if there are 40. He says, what if there's 40? And then he goes to 30 and 20 and 10. And each time the Lord is very patiently responding to Abraham. Um, finally, the Lord agrees, for the sake of 10, God promises, I will not destroy it. When I was young, I was astounded at God's patience in this uh, dialogue, but God was very patient throughout the whole time. And we see a picture here, um, because of Abraham's heart, he was asking for a genuine concern. Um, but we also see a, a picture pointing to Christ here. Unfortunately, Sodom and Gomorrah did not have the same outcome because they did not, excuse me, (coughs) they did not repent and they were were destroyed with sulfur and fire out of heaven. The dialogue between Abraham and the Lord is not a dialogue where God is being manipulated or he's not sure, undecided, but it points towards the person of Christ, God himself, as our mediator. In these narratives, when we see this back and forth sometimes, and we see this mediator in the place, the character of the Savior both holy and merciful, shines through in the midst of God's rebellion. And that's that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing God's mercy and his sovereignty displayed, and then we see it culminate in the person of Christ Jesus. Um, what about us, finally, as merciful servants of Christ? So we have this beautiful picture of Christ as the merciful servant. How are we to be merciful servants of Christ? God calls us as believers to have who have put their trust in him to have a heart of mercy towards others. Um, not only the lost, but also people in our own uh, body or in the church as a whole. In Luke 9:52, there's an interesting story. You may not know this story because it's only in this one gospel that I could find it. You may know this story, but it, it seems um, to fit right in with what we're talking about. Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem, this is Luke 9:52 52-53. Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem with his disciples and going through Samaria, a people group despised by the Jews of that day. Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come out of heaven and consume them?" But he turned and rebuked them, and then he went on to another village. So they knew their scriptures. They knew what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. They're thinking, they rejected you. Do you want us to call fire and sulfur out of heaven, destroy these people? And God rebuked them. He said, no, this is not my heart. So we are each rebuked and convicted, as Jonah and the disciples were, when God reveals to us our own self-centeredness. He is still a God of patience, mercy, and kindness, even when we are angry at his way of doing things, unkind towards others, or rebellious to his will. As we see in the book of Jonah, there's also consequences to our sin. This should prod our hearts to humbly repent from personal agendas and attitudes, seeking to know this amazing God more fully. If you don't have this relationship with the Lord, I urge you to come to him with a heart of repentance. Isaiah 55, 6-7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What a beautiful promise if you don't know the Lord. If you are a born-again believer and you do know the Lord, then I would encourage you with the following truths given by Jesus in Luke 6, 27-36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that? To you, Even sinners do the same. But, love your enemies, do good and lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High God. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Father God, Lord, this is convicting to each one of us. Father, only in you can we have a heart towards people who are um, wicked, doing things we don't understand, um, hurting us. Lord, there's multiple reasons we could get excuses. But Lord, each one of us in this room fits this category. So I pray that you would please give us a heart of flesh, Lord, that we might not turn away from those opportunities. Help us to pray for those who need to know you. And um, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We even thank you um, for just uh, Jonah's testimony. Even though it seems like it ends in a very bad place, we know that Jonah was your your prophet, and that he is yours. So we thank you for his testimony, and that you. Uh, had it written down for us to learn from. May we be people of mercy. May we be your children and be image bearers of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.